0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey, And we are joined today by our colleague Robert Vega, who is going to tell us about current efforts to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and what the USCCB is doing in response. I think this is your first – you've been a frequent collaborator on the podcast, but this is your first time on – as, as as my a, colleague yes as officially a part of pro-life staff i yes. think the last time you came on you maybe had been hired but you hadn't started i think that's correct i think that's right so but now you are actually officially on the uh, on the pro-life staff so welcome and thanks for yes, joining indeed. us today. thank
1: you yeah and it's a pleasure to now work two doors down from your esteemed Yay! co-star America. yes
2: yes it's great to have robert as part of the team it's been really great
1: well, so first of all, why don't we just jump in
0: and, and um, uh, with this, the Equal Rights Amendment. What is it? What is the Equal Rights
1: Amendment? So the Equal Rights Amendment is a proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So, you know, we have 27 amendments in the Constitution thus far in our 200-plus year history, first 10 being very early the Bill of Rights. And it is a proposed amendment that would require equal uh, treatment under law on account of sex. So the main operative section uh, that was adopted when it was passed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress in 1972 uh, says that, quote, equality of rights under law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And so on the... Surface that you know sounds really good. Um, the problems come, though. However, in in what that actually means and how that's going to be interpreted, and it having been now 50 years since it was initially passed by Congress, that interpretation has very much evolved in some ways that you know we would find problematic. And, you know, I guess I should mention that the history doesn't even go back 50 years. It actually goes back 100 years uh, because it was in the 1920s when the Equal Rights Amendment in some form was first getting getting proposed kind of at the grassroots level. And so it took 50 years for Congress uh, to actually pass something. And, you know, what really happened in the meantime, though, was that the existing Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment, which was passed uh, because of the Civil War and ensuring racial equality, but not actually specifying, it was only applied to race, that started getting applied more rigor- rigorously to sex later on in the 70s as well. So it, it ended up kind of subsuming or you know replacing a lot of what the Equal Rights Amendment in 1972 was, which was originally going to do.
2: So, OK, so let me back up. So in 1972, though, maybe it might be a good review really quickly of, like, how do you get an amendment to the Constitution? When was the last
1: time that there was? I don't even know. So it's uh, actually a funny one in the was like early 1990s, I believe. Uh, well, I missed that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really? well, it was one that really it, it really kind of slipped on the radar. So the I, th- I think before that, I think before that, the last one was during the it Nixon administration and was about the. Uh, Voting age to 18. Oh, okay. Voting age to 18 during the Nixon administration, right? But in the 1990s, there was an amendment that had been proposed back in the 1700s and was just floating out there, and then finally got ratified by enough states, like almost 200 years later. And that is the amendment that says that Congress can't vary its own compensation during the same term. That's so they right. can't give themselves a raise until, unless it effect, takes effect after the next election, so they can be held accountable for giving themselves a raise.
2: So now I think, so what are the requirements to actually pass any amendment to the Constitution? It's like ratified by two-thirds of the states?
1: So the norm, So Article 5 of the Constitution lays out a couple of routes, and the one that has been used the overwhelming majority of the time has been for both houses of Congress to pass the amendment by a two-thirds vote each, and then it goes to the states, and then three-fourths of the states have to ratify it. There are other possible procedures that would involve, uh, for example, states, uh, two-thirds of states calling for a constitutional convention to consider mm. amendments, kind of in the same oh, way that the Constitution be was created school. in the first place. Wow. Yeah, there actually <laughs> is like an Article Five movement out there, uh, I think a little bit both from the right and the left uh, politically to... Uh, see where that would go. Um, hmm. But that's a whole nother fun can of worms. And so then the president
2: is not involved at all. Right. OK. I, mean,
0: I have a couple of questions that are not really related to each other. I guess the first one, um, just s- sticking with this of how an amendment can even be ratified at all, the people proposing to go forward with this, what can you give us a sense of what they're thinking? Because... I can't in in a country as divided as our, as ours right now. It's just hard for me to imagine you could get two thirds majority on something like this. And you're def right. I mean, and the states are so divided too. Like, so what would be? Is it is this purely sort of a messaging type move? Or yeah, can you comment at all, or would you rather not comment on sort of the the politics behind going forward with something like
1: that? Well, this? I think you're. Um I think your question brings us to the long, procedural drama okay. of the last fifty years. Because, yeah, well, tar- can
0: I throw my other question I in there, maybe, yeah, maybe and you maybe should, you will address that? <laughs> well, and it may don't let me forget the first one. though. Okay, so yeah, but the other question I guess is like you, you said, this goes all the way back to the twenties, and I'm just the wondering.
1: The twenties. I realized the other day when I was referring to, oh, this was first came out in the twenties. I'm like, wait, we're in the twenties yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. The, so uh, the other twenties. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: you're right. <laughs>
0: but as you point out i mean there there have been so many changes and and so many more like since the early 70s to now there have been there's been so much that has changed with respect to you know how women are treated has the, has the language at all of what's being proposed changed in response to to the to changes that we've had in the actual in the real world right I mean like if you propose something to resolve some an issue like 50 years later if the issue isn't really the same as it was before you, is the language altered at all or is it still or are you still proposing the same thing that you proposed 50 or 100 years ago that doesn't even address the realities of 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 how these things are going today
2: yeah I mean the goals would Depending on who's bringing it forward and pushing it, their goals might change, you know, for what they want the amendment to say. What does it say? What does it do? What did it propose to do in the 20s, 1920s, that is, versus what is it? What is the – because there has to be more language than what
1: you just shared, right? I mean, the amendment – Not 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 really substantive. The other sections just about congressional enforcement power. You know, one line of that and one line about that it should take effect two years after ratification.
2: So, to some degree, don't we already have what it proposes? Well, yeah. So
0: go on. I think this this (laughs) is the whole. This is why we have our. This
1: is good. This gives me an opportunity to try to like kind of re -re smooth the uh, my presentation here because it does get a little convoluted in some of the legal history here. So, Mary, you know, we just discussed the way an amendment process is supposed to work, right? Uh, So what happened in 72 was when the two-thirds of Congress passed it, part of a compromise uh, that they entered into was to attach a provision saying that they were also including a seven-year deadline for ratification. And so that after seven years... The submission from Congress of the proposed amendment to the states would no longer be be valid, and within seven years uh, after that, uh, not enough states had ratified, and a and so and then you know a, a simple majority of Congress tried to e- extend it, and there was a. Uh, you know there was litigation over it, holding that the deadline, you know, that the deadline was valid, and it, you know, a simple majority of Congress couldn't extend it. And so, as of the 1980s, people agreed that the Equal Rights Amendment was was dead. And now, what is being proposed, and why this is in current events today again, and why we're talking about it today, is because there is a movement among activists for the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, both out in the public and in Congress, who want to say the, the deadline doesn't count, and also states, some states that have rescinded their ratifications don't count, that you can't put a deadline, you can't rescind, and that as a result, re- relatively recently in 2020, Virginia attempted to pass its ratification um, and so they, and so the activists for the ERA are saying, well, it is now ratified. You now have Virginia was the 38th state, so you you the three fourths of the fourths of the state, so it is now the 28th amendment. And the next week there will be a hearing in the Senate, and probably shortly thereafter a vote in the Senate on a resolution. by just a simple majority for the Senate to essentially recognize uh, the amendment as already being part of the Constitution claim, ignoring the existence of the deadline and Mm -hmm. ignoring the ability of states to rescind their ratifications before the three-fourths number had been reached. And there's a similar resolution on on, on the House side. And the legal validity of such a move is just really very much in dispute. There's still a live case right now about the Virginia attempted ratification in uh, the U.S. Uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. Uh, that is still pending. About uh, you know, what to, what to make of all this.
2: It's interesting. Okay, so I remember told you I had an
1: anecdote, Aaron. All so right.
2: this might have been. I think I only, when...
1: only answered half of the questions. Well, by the way, yeah, but we'll get back there. Sorry, but ahead, I'm sorry. I just have because <laughs> this is Please. on my mind.
2: Okay, so I was a public. This must have been 1986. But I was a public school student in Vermont. I was probably giving away my age here. But let's just say I was like (laughs) 9 or 10 or 11. I don't remember exactly which grade it was in. It was either 4th, 5th, or 6th grade. And the librarian who also taught my sister in the 3rd grade, she actually had a session with all the kids in the library, boys and girls, about the Equal Rights Amendment. And how wonderful it was, and how it would give women so many opportunities that they didn't have before, and rah rah rah, and you got to get behind this and start talking to your parents about it. And I remember, like, and I was, you know, a little kid. I didn't know what the heck she was talking about, but I remembered that when we brought this up again, I was like, hmm that that was appropriate for my librarian to be promoting this to public school students you know I, I, the and story for mine, actually like, gives me
1: a little bit of relief about what's going on in public schools today that we hear so much about like oh maybe this has been going on the whole time we just yeah, didn't know about it before the internet
2: yeah <laughs> maybe so anyway keep going with your i mean I, I think maybe the listeners are probably thinking right now well wait a minute Sounded pretty good. What's wrong
0: with that? Yeah, we still it? haven't talked about the issues know, yet, right? We still haven't talked about the like, problems yet. it's a problem? Well, yeah, so I'm, I mean, maybe and maybe this is what you were already going to get into a little bit. But, you know, as as Mary kind of alluded to earlier, what is the point or what is the need yeah. for this? What, and so I guess this gets to the question of, you know, what? why did the supporters want this? Or why why would they still be pushing this? Do they not have the protections or the rights that, that they were seeking in the early 70s or in the
1: 1920s, do they not have them now? You know, at, at the outset, a lot of what the Equal Rights Amendment would do before the Supreme Court started applying the Equal Protection Clause you know, for discrimination on the basis of sex a little more uh, robustly, uh, it would be uh, to promote things, at least where there's a government actor, you know, like uh, you know, equal, you know, equal pay equal inheritance rights, even, because, you know, believe it, you know, because that actually is something that wasn't automatic in the history of our country. You know, so there are good, solid principles, you know, emanate, you know, uh, emanating from that about ensuring that, you know, equal treatment of men and women under law, you know, that is concurrent with their having, you know, equal dignity, certainly. But after you get in the, the, a couple of years later, in the '70s, after you get more of this Supreme Court recognition of equal rights for women under the Constitution, uh, when there's a government actor, and then also statutes, both at the federal and state level, enacted by legislatures, ensuring equal pay, like uh, Titles uh, Title Seven and uh, you know, Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act, and Title Title Nine for Uh, education opportunities and fair fair housing and uh, all sorts of arrays of non-discrimination laws, you kind of do create a situation where there's not much more that the ERA can do for you other than potentially create problems like a new national right to abortion. And early on, some critics said that the ERA could be interpreted to do that, but a lot of the proponents said, oh, no, 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 that's just fear-mongering. Well, now, these days, especially in the last few years since the Roe v. Wade decision was becoming eminently vulner- uh, evidently vulnerable and now overturned, a lot of proponents of the ERA have been saying, oh, we need to pass it to ensure a national right to abortion because somehow equality in their interpretation demands that. Now, that might seem a little strange to us that equal treatment demands a right to abortion. But if it hasn't been ratified yet, and the supporters of the amendment are interpreting it this way, well, then even if you get a judge who kind of follows original intent in their interpretation of constitutional amendments, then a future judge is going to say, well, what was the intent? And well, at the time it was ratified, it looks like people thought it meant it created a right to abortion. Okay. And so they're, you know, liable to, you know, create a right to abortion and tear down a lot of uh, new state laws in the process. And you know, even when Roe v. Wade was still in effect, they some of them even wanted it to tear down some of the restrictions on abortion that were allowed to be in place at the state level at that point, um, kind of lower level regulations, you know, or not lower level, but um, you know more modest regulation like partial birth abor- abortion bans and things like that. And we've seen a little bit of this already, you know, this isn't just raw speculation. We see a little bit of this already at the state level. Uh, where some state constitutions have the equivalent of an equal rights amendment, and their courts have said that uh, that means uh, your Medicaid and you know public health funding has to pay for abortion. Like you can't have a state level type of Hyde amendment that prevents public funding for abortion. Like our equal rights amendment requires you to publicly f- make taxpayers fund fund abortion, mm-hmm. um, which you know, in my view is kind of absurd. But if that you know that's what we're seeing, so that be- that kind of thing becomes a real um, concern here. And also, since the Supreme Court's uh, Bostock decision uh, in 2020, the uh, terms of discrimination on on the account of sex or basis of sex also have become caught up in what the court called uh, transgender status uh, and then also sexual orientation. So, you know, what does that mean? If you want actual fair, you know, Dignified treatment for people under the law. Well, that's just fine. But then, but are you also then putting into the constitutional level a requirement that men who identify as women have to play on women's, uh, you know, school sports teams or in prisons because you know, if, you know, if they're created by the state, you know, the prison, you know, and they're they're a state entity like the prisons, uh, do they have to have like cross-sex sleeping quarters? You know, where does that leave Catholic? hospitals or catholic foster care where they're tied up a little bit with government funding you know even catholic hospital takes medicare medicaid patients are they going to be forced to perform a gender uh surgery on minors or forced to perform an abortion for that matter and because it's at the level of a constitutional amendment it's at least as powerful as our first amendment rights if not more powerful because it's more recent which kind of in the way you construct you construe laws, you usually give precedence to the more recent one if there's any sort of tension. So it, it can get to be very, uh, very scary once you start going uh, down that path.
0: Can I ask you something real quick though about that the in, the intention? And th- this may be a totally silly question to my non legal mind though. This is like one of the, the things that pops in my head when you said like, if a judge is is relying on intent when the when it's ratif when the amendment is ratified, will part of the question be when was it actually ratified? If if this were to go forward what is being proposed, that the deadline really didn't exist or whatever, like is the idea that it it was ratified when Virginia ratified it? So the I guess what I'm saying is when something like that has been so prolonged or mm-hmm. or the process so protracted that is the is it what was intended in 72 or what's intended by the activists now? Because those intention isn't the same, it would seem to me.
1: Yeah, and I don't think we have a ton of um, precedent for that because it's pretty wild to have a 50-year span. I mean, of course, we just discussed the 200-year span between proposal and ratification of the 27th Amendment. Uh, but I don't think anyone's really challenged that. And it hasn't been too controversial that we have to find out what the answer is so i think it's i think it's very much up for debate whether you know a judge would look at the intent at the time of proposal or the intent at the intent at the time of final ratification or some synthesis of the two but i don't think we want to find out the answer in <laughs> that in it, it because it, it because it, there's just you know those those negative impacts you know are really all you know there's left to it in a practical sense the you know, to the extent that there's anything practical left to be gained on the good side for the ERA, like it's it's been hard to artic- articulate, you know, I spent some time just earlier today looking at equalrightsamendment.org, which I've, you know, been on before to kind of see how they uh, describe it. And they have this section and page as to why, why do we need the ERA? And so much of it is about what they say is preventing rollback of women's rights because they just don't feel like they're guaranteed because they're not in the Constitution or you know they don't get strict enough scrutiny. And that and that's another thing. There's, to the extent that courts already scrutinize at the constitutional level and separate from the statutes, um, any sort of state or government discrimination on the basis of sex, the, the degree of scrutiny ag- against such discrimination would be higher in the I- ERA. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so they do believe there's. Value in that, but in a practical sense, there's very few things that that would affect in your day-to-day life, except maybe, maybe your sports teams or your locker rooms or whatever aren't just divided by, you know, aren't aren't just open to the opposite sex uh, because of a gender identity uh, assertion, but maybe they're just open to the opposite sex overall because suddenly at that highest scrutiny, having opposite sex private quarters is the same as having racial segregation, which is not okay. So therefore all the Well I'm glad you said that because I had wondered if
0: I was just with the Bostock decision that basically if you would treat a person one way, you can't treat them any differently based on their sex, right? That that's the idea of no sex discrimination and being applied to the gender identity case like well, it, the, a person wouldn't even need to be – to claim a different gender identity in terms of using different facilities and stuff because the, it seemed to me the reasoning in Bostock means – would be saying that you can't discriminate one way or the other based on sex. Like you
2: can't even consider it in your – whatever it is that you're doing, your law or your arrangement or your whatever. And so it's basically – like it sounds to me like what you're saying is it's essentially – N- nullifying the sex difference because you have to think of everybody as both male and female almost like
0: yeah well like yeah like, like if you have like sex specific facilities say a factory where you have to take a shower before you leave and you have male and female facilities i think the idea that people imagine in saying like well a male who identifies as a female should be allowed to Use the female facilities. This is what the gender activists would be saying. But I guess the way that I read, Bostock, it seemed to me that like, well, a male, the male doesn't even need to identify as a female to go use the gender the, to use the female facilities if that's what he wants to do because he because he because you can't treat him any differently than based on his sex, right? I mean, well, it, the identity doesn't, what does gender identity even have to do with it? I don't know, maybe I'm totally like that's, that would be extreme and no, who would do that, but I guess I'm just saying like it, it seems like the assumption is that gender identity is the thing that makes a difference, but I don't really see what difference the gender identity part makes. Like it seems like discrimination is still discrimination on the basis of sex, regardless of the gender identity.
1: Yeah, no, and I'm glad we got you know you know brought this up as well. Now the thing about the Bostock decision, though, is it had the limitation of being narrowed to the hiring and firing of people in empl- in employment contexts, title you know the Title Seven employment context. So, it was, so they tried the justices tried really hard to keep it narrow to mm-hmm. that, and it so it really left unanswered a lot of questions about private facilities, athletics. Uh, performance of certain health care procedures or health insurance coverage and all of that a lot of other court lower courts have taken it and ran with it in all sorts of problematic directions and to be fair a lot of the problems that I you know just uh, recited about um, gender and sexual orientation related questions in the uh, uh, from the Equal Rights Amendment are already playing out at kind of the statutory level in you know state Local and federal government, but what we're talking about here is a much deeper and a much broader, like constitutional level of this non-discrimination requirement. So, you know, Bostock had this yes, very strict interpretation of, in its own way, of what sex discrimination means, but it was very much limited to this hiring and firing in employment context. Mm-hmm. And so, here I think you would more open up the possibility. As, as we were saying, about, of cross-sex access to any sorts of places and activities regardless of you know, gender, you know, one's asserted gender identity even. An important distinction to remember though is that just like the existing Equal Protection Clause, it's still limited to state actors. right? The, term of the equal, terms of the Equal Rights Amendment says abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So it's still at the governmental level. So a private company under this, wouldn't technically be affected or shouldn't be, but there are still questions of where does that line get drawn if the private entity is tied up in a government program or government contract or, or government receives grant. federal funding uh, exactly, um, and also some some ad- advocates have been saying that. The Equal Rights Amendment um, provision about that Congress shall have the power to enforce the Equal Rights Amendment itself by, quote, appropriate legislation, that that somehow empowers Congress to go from the amendment, uh, the amendment's requirements on government actors and actually impose some sort of equity, non-discrimination standards in the private sector as well. Mm. Highly debatable i have my doubts about that but the fact that some people are particularly because there's an analog in the 14th amendment that hasn't gone that far there's sim- similar language in the 14th amendment for equal protection there that hasn't gone that far but the fact that again proponents are saying it enters it kind of into the what uh, what would be part of the practice of interpreting out what you know this amendment even means
2: so are you saying okay so if let's say this this would pass even though my understanding right now is it's, it's pretty slim right now but what this would do is so if it's limited to like you said state actors does that mean that you know a church in idaho catholic church for example it wouldn't apply this couldn't the the equal rights amendment wouldn't necessarily be applied to a catholic church and force them to accept you know men going into women's restrooms women going to men's restrooms correct
1: but dot dot dot. If you know the church is using you know government money for some sort of charitable program in its you know parish hall or whatever, which you know maybe you know isn't always you know wouldn't always be the case, but you know can bet it's you know at least vulnerable to litigation. Over and I don't think it should apply in that case, but there's you know going to be you know. There would be lawsuits probably to, to try to figure that whole thing out. Now, another interesting thing on the flip side of all this, I, I as well as kind of kind of this imposing of equity in the private sector is, well, what about government uh, programs that are meant to help specifically women, you know, help in- increase women's participation in in the STEM fields, for example, or small business loans geared toward women? Are they? Would they be unconstitutionally discriminatory on account of sex, or would they be just the sort of thing the amendment is supposed to do because it has to affirmatively promote equality?
2: Right. It's, it's, Where's the uh, poor man, poor man? They figure, need more help. Moving. We got to figure right? out the answer to these <laughs> questions
1: before we uh, before we consider this like a ratified part of our constitution.
0: That's a big step to ratify the constitution, rather than. Of course, just...
1: proponents would say it's already ratified, and that's where we are in the right. dispute now as well. Um well, yes, and you know, to that, I mean, to that end, of course, we do have a lot of legislation in, in place, as we've discussed, and you know, I only named like maybe three of them, but I think in Bostock, I think Justice Alito's you know dissent, I think he named like 100 statutes in, under federal law that have sex non-discrimination in their terms. Mm-hmm. So, to the extent any of that needs to be improved for ensuring real, you know, fair treatment on the basis of sex, then let's have that democratic debate and, you know, improve them and to the, ex- uh, improve them. And to the extent they need to be refined to not have, uh, unintended consequences with respect to abortion or gender, gender hormone, uh, medical mandates on, you know, for children, uh, then, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's refine those as well. Mm-hmm. I I, w- I would say
0: it's hard to, Imagine what it would mean for Catholics, for the Constitution to give a right to abortion. Like,
1: in a way, we dealt just dealt with that for the last 50 yeah, yeah years, <laughs> 49 years.
0: But it still always seemed but, difficult, different because there the you were able. Part of the argument was that it was a bad decision that there is no constitutional. You know, you could. But th- if this would make it more like. That that's what this was for, part of. What the purpose of ratifying this now was to make a constitutional right. It just, but hopefully none of this is going to happen, or hopefully it hasn't happened since, it, <laughs> since this is all. Um, so
1: what? But what do you think is going to happen with all of this? Where do you see this going? Well, so we've got two tracks. Um, we have in the legislature the resolutions that are currently up in the house and the senate, and the senate doing that vote uh, this is coming soon that I mentioned, which will probably fail, but isn't guaranteed. And then we have uh, on the House side, there's a possibility with Republicans currently have the majority in the House, but there's a device called discharge petition by which a minority party, if they get enough members of the majority and have enough members of uh, the House sign it, they can force something onto the onto the floor for a vote that the majority leadership might otherwise not want to see. So there you know, is a possibility that a democratic minority in the house could get just enough republicans to sign on to force it to a vote and potentially pass it there. Unlikely, so unlikely to pass in either chamber, but still possible enough that if it does, we have on our hands a real serious constitutional question here of you know, can a simple majority of Congress say that a constitutional amendment exists by virtue of ignoring deadlines and rescissions? And, you know, the answer should be no, because it take, you know, they're not a two thirds, which is required to propose an amendment in the first place. And the two thirds majority that did propose the amendment did apply that deadline to it. But we don't really have precedent for, you know, the the article five that lays out the amendment process admittedly doesn't get into deadlines it doesn't get into rescissions of ratifications before the 3 fourths threshold is met so there are questions that haven't had to be answered before you know i think the majority of people for decades including Ruth Bader Ginsburg by the way said that you know this amendment has been dead for decades but it's never been answered and you know for her part i think it's you know really notable that she who very much supported the, the ERA essentially said uh, on multiple occasions in private opinions, not in official court rulings, but in private in her private opinions is, well, how can you ignore the deadline, but at the same time ignore the rescissions? Many of which actually came before the deadline, but she's like, you can't have it both ways. You can't say there's no mm-hmm. deadline, but then also say no one could have rescinded early on either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she would have, and so she wanted to just see the whole process start over, which would at least, you know, have, more legitimacy
2: so if they then did you, oh sorry go ahead
1: well i was gonna say then you have the whole separate judicial track with this court case pending in the circuit court because three states i think it was three states sued when virginia claimed to ratify it in 2020 and become the 38th state the district court judge who is an obama appointee said you know said no dice um and so they had oral argument last fall we're waiting to hear from the dc circuit court of appeals which is you know generally considered kind of the second highest court in the land and it'll probably go to the Supreme Court and we will have to see what then they say from there as well.
2: I was just going to ask if so if both House and Senate would ratify the deadline, right, and say, oh, well, this is already actually exists, who, what's the mechanism? Are you, is there a precedent? Like who decides, who, who can challenge that? Another branch?
1: No, right? I think you'd probably have, um, off the top of my head, probably states. Well, first would probably be states. Especially those that had claimed to have rescinded. Others might be those then personally impacted downstream. Like if you do have a um, a Catholic hospital that's caught up in some of the implications of this, or you know a prison inmate or a student who doesn't like the outcomes uh, for it and their sports team or detention ward <laughs> or whatnot. Um, so, I, so I think those that's who you would be having to challenge that, and that's if the passage. By Congress results in the archivist, who is this person that apparently the is the official one who can put it on the books as part of the Constitution. And uh, the archivist is uh, an appointed member of the executive branch. And thus far, despite um, you know this being a Democratic administration, they haven't. I think they've recognized the solemnity of such a step and have you know not taken it, which is why. Uh, we're kind of seeing this pressure both in Congress and uh, the courts right now. So, would the arch- first would the archivist respond to the congressional passage of these resolutions? And then, uh, if you know, if they did, yeah, I think I think you'd probably first see states line up to you know be, uh, file some. I mean, it seems like you could have a real. Uh,
0: well, I mean, it seems like you could have a real crisis on your hands, like. You're saying, I mean, because it sounds like you're suggesting that that even it like that it could, the Congress could vote a certain way, but then potentially the archivist could could not could could ignore that not ignore them, but like not put actually put it on the books. How would that? How is that? Right. That seems like wild to even some guy,
2: sug- woman, just like ah.
0: But I'm then I'm not going to do my job.
2: Or, it well, seems like you know.
0: could have states, to like especially the ones who rescinded, say we're not going to recognize this. You know th- that that yeah. seems like a bigger like not. I mean t- because to 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 line up to go to court or like that's that's still playing with within the processes. Do you think this is the sort of thing that, that could trigger something that drastic uh, that a governor says? I'm not we're going we're going to go forward as if this doesn't exist I mean then you would have a big maybe that's just wild and like not really possible but it's it doesn't seem like it's out of the realm of possibility
1: no I think you I think you probably could see that because of the um, as it is the arc you know the archivist I think kind of in consultation with the whole of the executive branches had to make a tough decision already with the Virginia supposed ratification because that whole lawsuit was against the archivist for not Declaring it ratified, and the archivist was acting kind of concurrently with a decision by the um, a DOJ memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, which kind of does their kind of official analysis on big tough policy questions uh, back in 2020, where you know they you know essentially said that you know that the Virginia ratification was not you know was not effective, and that there these procedural uh, obstacles about the deadline and everything are are real and the ERA has not been ratified. So, you know, DOJ said that, and the archivist, you know, agreed, and is you know that that position has been maintained. So, if a simple majority in Congress passes a resolution saying they think that it's ratified, I mean, it's not really like a law of Congress that the executive branch has to obey. The executive branch seems like it would have the ability to say, well, no, Congress, that's incorrect. It's, it's still not correctly ratified. Uh, or they might yield, or the or the archivist might yield. Who knows? Well, this has been a really
0: interesting <laughs>
1: <conversation>. <laughs> I, yeah, feel, I feel like I've muddied it
2: more than clarified. No, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's complicated. But I guess, first, the question on my mind is, Robert, now that you've demonstrated your brilliant legal mind and your knowledge on this area, like, on this topic, like, so the USCCB, like, I know there's a there's a fact sheet, right, on the website. But I guess the question would be, like, okay, well, so is this something where – the listeners can contact their members of Congress and weigh in on this?
1: Of course, of course. And the USCCB has had materials on this in the past when it's been up uh, in some prior iterations. Um, And as we start to see the Senate action, we are going to be prepared with our responses as well to ensure that uh, members of Congress are informed as to the problems here and at the same time wanting to help ensure that uh, the faithful are informed as to the problems here and contact their members of Congress, particularly if you have any of those uh, members who you know, frankly are among the Republicans who might be inclined to favor this because of the ostensible good elements of it and may not fully appreciate. Uh, all the real you know, negative consequences, whether it be procedural or substantive, you know, it's going to, be going to be really important to reach uh, those members uh, from their constituencies and have them understand that this is um, not, the, not the way to go.
2: So where do they sign up for the? Where do they get what one well, URL should we give?
0: Things are going up on the pro-life is sort of the let, I think it's usccb.org slash pro-life.
1: And we'll, cert- yeah, we'll certainly have our main materials there. Don't go to
0: EqualRightsAmendment.org. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> www.usccb.org slash pro-life. Because um, y'all are the ones kind of in charge of, since it's the abortion is the main concern we have, I think. So that's y'all are the ones kind of shepherding the resources through. Um, so yeah, that, I think that that's probably the best best place to go. usccb.org slash
1: pro-life. And, and there will yeah, be more coming. I, materials I don't know, are forthcoming. I don't know when this uh, episode of your podcast is airing, so they may be coming out right before or right after, but there, there's yeah, more coming, uh, so stay tuned.
0: All right. Well, Robert, uh, I know you've been very busy working on this, uh, so I'm glad we got to get you in here while this is all kind of fresh for you So um, and that you were able to take some time out to come and talk about this. So thanks a lot. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me again. So we've been talking with Robert Vega about the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm Aaron Weldon
2: and I'm Mary McCleskey and thank you for joining us for the First Freedom Podcast. <music>